it sounds nice. it seems like your book is doing phenomenally well. It's only been out um a few weeks, right? And you've already racked up a bunch of Amazon reviews and a lot of attention. It's doing great, man. It's um yeah, both Apocalypse Never and San Francisco are selling well. I'm totally thrilled and honored and yeah, it's been a it's been a, it's been a fun ride. And, but it, it's not your first book, right? Because I remember you, you had, right. yeah, right. This is the other one. For, oh, right, got it. Cool. Um, Apocalypse Never in San Francisco. <laughs> right, and it's it's funny because um, you're such a. I mean, you're 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 in a. I guess from the San Francisco perspective, you are a polemicist, right? You're you're ex- expressing skepticism over the over climate change, and now you're you're talking about how progressives can tend to ruin cities and you don't hold any punches in your book. I just finished it literally this morning. Um, and I was, I was impressed at how willing you are to uh, really just confront a lot of the sort of pieties of San Francisco life <laughs> in your book. Um, Thank you. I don't, I I've written, I've written polemics before. I have a lot of respect for polemics, but, but San Francisco is not a polemic. It's a um, polemics are, are short, they are more focused on rhetoric and and they're more cutting um both san francisco and apocalypse never are are 400 pages 1200 footnotes each um serious grapplings with the evidence but but no i don't hold any i don't pull any punches but i I don't i don't think they're polemics exactly either no sorry yeah no you're right i mean i it's one thing that struck me about your book i mean starting with literally the first chapter is in fact exactly how much data you cite and you seem extraordinarily conversant with all the efforts that this city has expended, both when it comes to things like homelessness and crime, and we're talking, I mean, it, it almost reaches policy wonk levels of detail about um, all the efforts. <laughs> right, Thank I know I, I said that as a compliment because I know you would take it as a compliment. <laughs> um, I would say it's complete. You know, I wanted to write a complete book. I wanted to write a book that that people could have and that answers all of the big questions that you might have. Um, to what extent is this a housing problem? To what extent is this a drug addiction problem? What do other countries do? What works? What doesn't work? And then why, given that we know what works, why aren't we doing it? Um, right. So let, let's get into that. Because, again, you, you really it's not just about homelessness and it's not just about crime. It's about so many things around where SF urban life is going wrong. I mean, your, your book is is information dense and it's really good. So, yeah. So you, you start, I, I'm looking Thank at my you. notes here. You, you start with, I think probably the most salient issue when people think about like, what's wrong. What's when people think San Francisco, what's wrong. It's, it's the homelessness angle. And uh, I, I think you diagnose a lot of, a lot of ills. Right. Um, and one of them seems to be this odd combination of being sort of pro housing or the thought that housing is human right but then not actually building housing and then also being anti-shelter, right? For, for a bunch of reasons. And I, I don't think with that, not being nasty, I, th- I think you just, you let a, a lot of the people who I think would probably disagree with you speak for themselves and kind of display I, what I would call their own kind of contradictory thinking about how they're approaching the problem. I'll stop, I'll stop there. Um, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I thank you for seeing that. I mean, I made a very strong effort to let uh, to let people speak for themselves. I quote people at great length. I represent the conventional wisdom. I steel man. Uh, I'm obsessed with steel manning. I steel man. I steel man in Apocalypse Never. I steel man in San Francisco. Um, 
I give them the full argument. I represent it as well as I can. And then I debunk a bunch of things. The biggest one is just, yeah, the idea that the people on the street are just poor. You know, that really it's just the same right. as it is in, you know, India or Nigeria or Brazil. The folks are, it's right. just like the people in the favelas in Rio or something. That's obviously wrong. And anybody that ever talks to anybody, the so-called homeless on the street, knows that you're talking to people with addiction and or mental illness problems. So it's absurd. And I debunk that and I go through, you know, why do people say that? I, I also describe the ways in which the people who promote those ideas basically um, viciously attack anybody who questions the conventional wisdom. You know, I was struck and shaken because I'm, I'm still a very sensitive person, even though may not people may not think my opponents don't think that, but I'm still a bleeding heart liberal and I'm really upset obviously by what's going on to the loss of humanity. And it was, it was it's startling for people to accuse you of fomenting violence against people on the street for simply pointing out the fact that they're suffering from addiction. I mean, I'm trying to recognize a medical condition that people are suffering from. I mean, if, if you, it's like, it's like if everybody on the street was suffering from diabetes and then being like, yeah, no, no, they just need housing. Well, no, they have diabetes. They need, they need, you need to treat the sickness. And so, yeah, that's at the heart of it. And how did, how did we go for so long, really right. 30 years convincing ourselves that this is just a problem of people being too poor to afford the rent? Right. I mean, I think that's one thing you point out very well and, and often in a, in a very harsh way, right? That I, I think one of the lines of your book is that, I mean, you quote somebody saying people come to San Francisco basically to die, right? That you quote that in some sense, it is, it is this destructive urge and it's this toxic cocktail of mental illness and drugs and the crime ridden harsh life on the streets that keeps people in this situation. And, and like you're saying, to ignore that is to want to, is to want, I guess, I guess there's a taint of, of victim shaming or the thought that you'd be blaming people or assigning moral agency to them. That's the other thing you mentioned. One of your chapters is called, and again, you're, <laughs> I, in a, I say this in a, in, a, in a positive way, but your book is full of so many heresies. Right? <laughs> you're going to get so canceled in this city. Um, because one of your, one, the title of one of your books is, well, not everyone's a victim, actually. <laughs> right? Um, which I thought it was fascinating. And you illustrate right. the example. And again, right. I, I don't think you're not like a, you know, you're not like a, an inquisitor sort of condemning these people. You're, I think you're sympathetic to them, but, you, but you're quoting people themselves who say, you know, I, I fucked up. I was just a selfish ass, an asshole um, who just went on a rampage and just wasn't stopped until the law stopped me. <laughs> and if the law hadn't stopped me, I just, I'd keep on going. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's funny when you read like conservatives, the conservative view on this for a long time has been the people that are on the street using drugs. They want to be there. You know, they, they, and, you know, right. you interview people and you can find that. My view is that they're addicts. I mean, addiction is a, is a, is a, is a, is an illness, you know, and it takes over. And so, you know, when people, addicts, I mean, addicts lie, addicts steal, addicts do anything to defend right. the addiction. It's almost right. like a virus or something. And so I don't actually suggest at any point that the people on the street are like exercising free will. In fact, I question that a lot. Um, and I argue that you do need to intervene. I mean, we know this at some level. It's, we have a very, we're very confused, which is probably why I wrote the book. I mean, we have a television show called Intervention. The entire reality, it's a reality show. The entire show is about intervening. 
I think most of us, I have three friends from high school that, that had very bad drug addiction. All three were homeless. Two are dead. Dead. One of them was briefly a Hollywood celebrity. Um, another one I just spoke to a few weeks ago. Um, I think we all know that people need interventions, you know, and yet we do the exact opposite. We actually call it, San Francisco prevents interventions, actively prevents interventions. I've been working with a mother who wants to intervene with her son who's a fentanyl addict and could right. die any day on the streets of San Francisco, like 700 other people did last year. And she's not allowed to. So this is bizarre. And so one of the questions was, how is this, you know, the question was, is this too much compassion? And if it's too much compassion, how do you explain the fact that they let so many people die? Right. I mean, that's the issue. Right? I think that's the thing, right? That somehow the compassionate response is letting people do whatever the hell they want on and living in a very bleak urban cityscape rather than the opposite. And the interesting thing about your book is that you, you take so many historical deep dives that um, are fascinating. For example, the, the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, which everyone kind of blames on Reagan. Um, you actually paint a much broader picture. It was actually, it was actually part, partially a democratic gesture, actually. It wasn't just big bad Reagan who did all of this. And in fact, I didn't know this at all, by the way, that I guess there was this sort of knee-jerk revolt against psychotherapy or, or psychiatry in the 70s and 80s that made it seem that like, you know, regular mainstream people thought it was going to be a quack science and things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I think we've all seen or read the book, right, made it such that it seemed as if these insane asylums were horrible places to put people and they would be they'd be better off in community clinics, but then those community clinics never got built or funded and then everyone was just on the street and it was just this total cock-up that has led to the current situation, which I'm, I'm summarizing what, what, a much better, fuller description that you have of it. But I, I just didn't even understand that background to it. Um, is, is there any fixing it? Is there, is there any, can you turn that clock back, I guess? Maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a simple question to ask. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, let me say one thing, though, too, which is that, you know, dealing with people, particularly with serious mental illness, has always been difficult. It's the most difficult group of people to, to handle. So there is some complexity here, you know, in the in the battle. So everybody remembers the hospitals because of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But before that, people, mentally ill people were chained up in in dungeons and in, in, in barns and, or they were killed. Right. I mean, so there's this this. But, but so then you get to this period where people are in the mental hospitals. We actually started deinstitutionalization starting in the 30s. Kennedy was the person that oversaw the acceleration of deinstitutionalization in 1961. But when you interview progressives and you go, how did it get so bad? They say, like, to a person, well, it was Reagan. And it's either Reagan let everybody out of the mental hospitals or Reagan cut the housing budget. And both of them... You know, in in polite liberal society in San Francisco, when somebody says Reagan did it, you're supposed to just nod and go, oh, yeah, well, Reagan was the devil. So, of course, it had to be Reagan, as opposed to being like, so wait a second. So <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. The reason there's so many homeless people on the streets of, Cal of San Francisco today is because Reagan was president from 1980 to 1989, 1981, 1989. Like how walk me through. So nothing occurred in the last 30 years. You know, never mind the fact that San Francisco spends more than any other city, <laughs> right. you know, any other major city on homelessness. Or they go, or, is, or Reagan let everybody out of the mental institutions, and he was like the only guy that did that. That was just Reagan. Well, of course, they're both. It's both. They're both false. First of all, Reagan 
kept the federal housing budget nearly flat when he was in office. And there were forces beyond him that were influencing that budget. And then it was really Kennedy who starts emptying the mental hospitals. And this is important in the sense that I see in my work, but else in a lot of places, the radical left, when it gets ahead of itself, and it's not just the radical left often, it's often just liberals, you know, regular Democrats, um, who get this idea, they, they get so upset by how bad our institutions are, whether it's psychiatric hospitals, jails, police stations, prisons, nuclear power plants, um, you know, convention, and we go, we got to tear it all down, man. We got to tear it all down and we're going to replace it with this new thing. And you're like, great, let's go ahead and create that new thing. And then we'll go ahead and sh no, no, it just, you end up just shutting down the thing before you create the new thing. So, so basically trans, it was, it was not deinstitutionalization. Right. It was trans institutionalization. The, 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 the institution that has the most seriously mentally ill people in the United States is the Los Angeles County jail. So what did we do with our difficult, mentally ill brothers and sisters? We put them on the street or we put them in jail and prison. Very few of them got the care that they needed. My aunt was one of them, however. She, was, she had schizophrenia. She lived in a group home in Denver. So of course we know how to handle this. Of course we do. Like it's just we do what every other civilized, we do what every civilized nation has done. I don't count the United States as a civilized nation because of this issue. But you have, um, you know, you have psychiatric beds in hospitals, you have group homes, we have pretty, you know, it's not great, but we have much better medicines than we did 50 years ago. We have antipsychotic injectables that you can, that last for 30 days. Because of course, one of the problems is that the drugs, people feel better, right. people with schizophrenia or severe bipolar or other serious mental illness, they feel better and they get convinced that they don't need their medicines anymore. They go off the medicines, and then things go sideways. They end up on the street. They push somebody into a subway tracks. It's not great. And so what Foucault, you're sort of describing Foucault and the radical left in the 60s were part of that because they argued that mental illness was a myth, that it did not exist, that it was just a way to stigmatize neuroatypical people. Right, so you, you, yeah, you mentioned Foucault all, all throughout your, your book, actually. It's, it's really interesting. Um, the, the other thing I'll mention is you mentioned the homelessness topic. Another fact that I learned in your book that I didn't realize is that the actual per capita homelessness rate in other U.S. cities is actually higher than San Francisco, like significantly higher. But yes. the, it's the unsheltered homeless rate that is so much higher in San Francisco. It makes it so much more visible. Yeah, um, you got it. So, so, this is a, so this is really important. Homeless, the word homeless is a propaganda word. It was used in, it's, right. it was, oh, it's old, but it was used in earnest in the 80s, literally designed to deceive people about the nature of the problem. It was literally designed to deceive people and get them to not think about the fact that the people on the streets are suffering from crack addiction and alcohol addiction, as in the 80s, or, or other problems today. And it was designed to combine groups of people that don't, should not be combined. People living unsheltered on the street with people that have are in shelters or people that are on the street because of addiction and people on the street just because they got evicted because they couldn't afford the rent or they're escaping an abusive partner or something like that. So yes, um, the word is a disaster. It's a nightmare. I don't, I just don't even, I don't even like to use it anymore. The word homeless. And of course the, now you're supposed to say unhoused or houseless, but nonetheless, the idea is to get your head focused on, on a symptom of the underlying problem rather than the cause of the problem. Right. 
and well, I, I don't want to jump ahead because I, I, well, let, I, one thing that one picture that you get, I think, out of your book and that you explicitly go into in some of your chapters, specifically, you go into a great chapter, which, by the way, is an undertold story in San Francisco. I sort of know about it because I like reading about San Francisco, but the Jim Jones cult, right? And the sort of 70s and the Harvey Milk and the Moscone and the Feinstein period and um, how formative that was to the leadership class of the city. Um, but one of the lines that you quote there, which I thought was fantastic, was uh, I'm just bringing up my Kindle so I don't quote it out of school here. Um, a city where tolerance de- deteriorates into license, a town without a norm, <laughs> right? Which is a phenomenal quote, I think, from an SF Chronicle columnist. Mm, um, mm. And maybe we'll just maybe we'll just plant that because at some point I do want to ask you the question: wh- What do you think is fundamentally broken? There's something wrong in San Francisco, right? Like this is just not normal that you have the juxtaposition of phenomenal wealth and competence and a bunch of and, and natural beauty, and at the same time a level of urban decay that, like, there was this viral Twitter thread I don't know if you saw a few weeks ago in which like Colombian tourists came here and like this is worse than Colombia. This is horrible. We're getting the fuck out of this place. <laughs> like, oh yeah, of course. Oh yeah, and it's, sure. um, but b- before we get to that, I I, I do want also I don't want to I don't want to short um, I don't want to um, you know n- not do justice to your book. You go into a lot into the crime side of things as well, and you mention our DA Chessa Boudin, and you know one thing I get out of his out of Chessa, I'd, I'd love to ask him. It's funny he spoke at my synagogue recently. I, I didn't have the rocks to like interrupt <laughs> the Zoom call. Say, dude, can I just ask you a question? Do you think your parents should be in jail? Like they killed a cop and they were part of like a communist terrorist group do, do you feel that jailing them was correct because when they came out the whole spiel was you know whatever unification this and that but i i just don't think boudin believes in justice in the sort of traditional way of like you commit a crime and like you go to jail sorry that's just how it works i i maybe that's too blunt and direct a question and maybe i'm framing it wrong and you don't like it but that's that's what's jumped out at not just your book but every other thing that i've read about rda Yeah, so I do. I have a I have a long discussion. I, I do discuss Chester Bodine. Um, I actually had a lot more on him, and I pulled it out because I worry that these problems, these things, were getting worse before him. And I, I worry that the intense focus on him. I just worry that the intense focus on him that people are going to see it like a silver bullet. Like you get rid of Chester Bodine, everything's going to be fine, and that's not. Um, you know. That said, um, I think there's. I think it's helpful to think of two separate groups of people that are in a symbiotic relationship. One is your basic bleeding heart liberal who goes, it would just be mean to require people to not be able to sleep on the sidewalk. That would just be mean. This is just a kind of childlike view. Right. It's just a kind of liberal view. That's that's one set of views. Um, and that's kind of victim ideology. They're right. victims. You know, it's racist. They're black, therefore they're victims. Totally racist idea. It's, it's uh, or mentally ill or whatever. They're they're addicts, and therefore, the second part of that victim ideology, of course, is that once decided that they're victims, then nothing should be required of them. Only things given. So you might, we might agree that somebody's a victim. I mean, people are victimized all the time, but that's different from then. What do you do about it? Sometimes the best approach is not to just give victims whatever they want. Then there's right. um, so then that's that. But then there's the separate thing, the separate ideology, which I trace through the French historian Michel Foucault, who says that mental illness doesn't exist. He also says that criminals are actually revolutionaries. They're actually challenging the system. This is sort of a this is sort of he's borrowing from Marx and they're sort of also borrowing from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. 
Um, it's a stupid idea, so I don't want to give it too much intellectual pedigree by tracing it to Rousseau, which makes it sound sophisticated. But the idea is basically that um, so all of the evils are from the system. So this, this you know, the, the you know, Marx made it capitalism. Rousseau just made it society. But we all know what this is. This is just sort of saying all of the problems are because of the man, right? So, so it's the system. So that explains why you would allow why why it explains why progressives care so much more about the African Americans killed by the police than the thirty times more African Americans killed by civilians every year. Thirty times more. I mean, this is not a small number. Right. It's why they care. Why they're so much more upset when homeless people are, you know, arrested for breaking the law than they are for when homeless people are stabbed by a drug dealer with a machete. Because the drug dealer is not a is not a manifestation of the system. The drug dealer is is and whereas the police officer is. So there's an anti-system hatred on the one hand. That's Chesa Boudin and the radical left, Foucault, Marx, Rousseau. And then you have the kind of bleeding heart liberal who's just sort of like, we should be nice to victims. They, there's a, they're, the, the first holds the second, but the second is often not that, it's not that thought through. And I think that that's the ways in which, that's why I was very careful about this title. We had a title, an earlier title was called Why the Left Ruins Cities. And we thought, you know, it's not quite right in that it's not, it's, first of all, it's not specific enough. So what are we talking about? We're we talking about all Democrats. You know, and then we were like, if you say progressives, there's something going on in the word progressive. This happened just as my in my adult life, where it combined old school New Deal New Deal liberals, great society liberals, with the radical left. And it's that marriage of the two of the you gotta be nice right. for victims, plus all problems are due to the system that makes such a toxic combination. Yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering the original progressive was like Teddy Roosevelt, right? <laughs> who, who was very much a social reformer, right. actually, for everything from the quality of water for the poor in New York City and a bunch of other stuff. You don't typically associate him with that, but he absolutely was. Um, and yeah, I mean, just to get slightly theological about it, right, this, this whole victim narrative, I've, I've, under, I've interviewed other people for pull requests who are like, you know, theology or religion scholars or even conservative voices like Rod Breyer. And, you know, it's this secularized form of Christianity that elevates the victim as, as divinity. And the, the key, you know, and obviously, you know, a guy named Rene Girard wrote a lot about it. And it's the central moral myth of the Western world, right? And it's still operative even in our secularized world. But I think the, the key thing that you're, the, the key thing you're putting right. your finger on that is not just that, though. It's like, who is the figure of, the, of Christ's tormentor? That's a key part of the morality play. And you're only willing to accept certain forms of victimization, not victimization more broadly. Because in, so, in some twisted way, the Christ narrative is a way of condemning Christ's tormentor rather than alleviating, actually, the suffering of the Christ figure, which is exactly the story in, in, the, homeless, in the homeless case, right? We're, we're, all, we're all willing to assail Ronald Reagan, and we're not actually willing to create community mental health centers that'll take the mentally off the streets, right? which would actually alleviate the suffering. Um, anyhow, not that that... Right. Not, well, with Christianity, you have a, there is an Old Testament. Yes. So in some ways, San Francisco-ness, which I do trace back to St. Francis, that's where it comes from. And, right. and I, I make a criticism of St. Francis, who, you know, modern scholars think may himself have been mentally ill when he had his vision of Christ or he was, or he was divine, but depending on your view. But nonetheless, the, the behavior of St. Of Francis 
he, he had this vision. He went, he was a rich kid, by the way. So he's a rich kid. He went to war. He got mentally ill or some kind of psychosis. If you medicalize it, as opposed to, you know, being is theological, but, it, but either way, he goes home and he gets, he steals money from his father and steals his father's silks. He was, a, his father was a silk trader and brings them to the church. And it was the church. It was the preacher of the church that, or the priest that, that said, you can't know. I'm not going to just take stolen goods from you. That's inappropriate. And I thought it was such an interesting story because Christians, yes, even a, even a religion that is ostensibly uh, uh, centering victims actually says, no, there's a right and wrong way to do this. There are norms. There are rules. There, I mean, Jesus didn't say, stop following the Ten Commandments. You know, that's different. <laughs> that, right. That's something else. Yeah, yeah, no. And right now, in fact, that, that's a whole that's a whole heretical strain of Christianity called Marcionism. Right. So, I mean, it, it's funny that the, the secular versions of Christianity fall into the same heresies that religious Christianity did back in the day. But I think yes. just slightly less aware of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for um, sure. It's a lot dumber. Um, it's a lot less sophisticated, although it was equally b- bad when they did it before, for sure. Right, right, right. So let me, I, I've got a, a bunch of questions for you. And, and obviously, if you want to expand on anything, by all means, go ahead. But I, I wanted to get back to a little bit um, the issue of, of SF exceptionalism, to use a phrase, right? Like, I'm going yes. to, I'm, I'm, I'm crashing at my, my, my girlfriend's place. And as I tweeted this morning, I'm actually like within view of the first place I lived in San Francisco, which is on the other side of Alamo Square, which is also where like the Seven Sisters are, which was at the beginning of that sitcom. So there's always tourists out there. It's like the most SF place ever, right? Um, and there, there's something magical about this city. Right. The natural environment is amazing. There's something bewitching about this city, but also deeply broken. And I'm curious, again, you seem to have, you, you seem to have such a, a background yes. on SF history. What is your conclusion about why, why it's fundamentally broken? What, what is broken about San Francisco? Well, let's start with what's let's start with what's special about San Francisco, because what's broken about it is really the exaggeration and extension of what's wonderful about it. So it's a highly libertine city. You could say it's libertarian city, always had more bars than churches. Um, You know, when I started doing research on this, I'd interview people and they would say things like it's the Wild West out here. And I'd kind of roll my eyes and go, "Okay, all right. All right. Wild West. I get it. But by the end of this book, I was like, wow, it is the Wild West out here. Like. The lawlessness, you know, right. and on the one hand, you know, like there's this, um, you know, look, the, there's no there's no coincidence that the high tech sector has been in San Francisco and that San Francisco has been this incubator for it. Because, right. you know, it's like, you know, move fast, break things, you know, where these startups are like, yeah, what we're doing might be illegal, but then we'll just try to change the laws. You know, that's the same, <laughs> which I think we all love right. about this place. It's so amazing that you would kind of go, right. well, that's a stupid law. So right. we'll, get, we'll become a unicorn and then we'll, we'll hire lobbyists and change the laws. Like, why would we let laws get in our way? That similar mentality exists on so many other things. Needle exchange. Now they're wanting to move forward with these uh, drug injection rooms, you know. And so there's something quite American, manic, entrepreneurial, and just cool about that culture. I love it. It's why I'm here. I, you know, I, I went back to DC for one year um, after moving, I moved to California, I moved to San Francisco in 1993. Um, so I'm now, I'm now, I've gone native, but I went, I went to DC for a year in there and I hated it, Antonio. I mean, I just hated it. 
You know, people you <laughs> and they would go, they would go, Oh, nice to meet you. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to school? And I'd be like, What? Right. Like, what do you mean? What where did I go? Who cares? Who cares where I went to school? <laughs> well, they wanted to hear me say Harvard or Yale or Princeton or something like that. And otherwise I'd look right. over my shoulder and try to figure out somebody more important to talk to. In San Francisco, it's like, what are you working on? What are you building? You know, what are you creating? So, okay, so that's the good side. You know, the bad side is then that when you're like, hey, I'm uncomfortable having somebody, you know, uh, this couple moved into my front yard and they're just doing meth and smoking fentanyl all day and I'm uncomfortable with that. People go, you know what, man, just feel the response from a lot of people on this, you know, your neighbors, whatever. It's kind of like, hey, man, you know, just take it easy. You know, we like to smoke weed on the porch and drink a glass of rosé on the porch. How is that different? You know, the right answer is pretty darn different, actually. Um, but I think it comes from that. And then, you know, the compassion stuff is real, too. I mean, the one thing you get, there's a really beautiful book. Um, I was dinged. It was a minor criticism, but it was like somebody was like, it's not that my book's not the definitive book about San Francisco. And I was kind of like, that's right. My book's about why progressives ruin cities. It's not the definitive book on San Francisco. The definitive book on San Francisco has already been written um, called The Season of the Witch. Uh, oh, yes. Um, great which book. is just yes. this, I, of course, you know, I used the parts of it that I, I needed for it. But, you know, uh, San Francisco got, had a really and deservedly a very strong self-perception around how it dealt with the AIDS crisis. You know, people with HIV AIDS would come to San Francisco from other cities around the country to get treatment, and we treated them. And it was beautiful, and it was great, and we should be proud of that. Um, and we were not homophobic, and we were not, you know, weirded out by it like a lot of conservative places were. And we also did needle exchange, and so we had that. And then, but then you get to this issue, addiction, and it's addiction's not HIV AIDS. HIV AIDS doesn't kind of make you go, oh, I have to go out and make my HIV AIDS worse. Whereas that's what addiction does. Addiction says you need to go out and make your addiction worse. Yeah, no, interesting. I, um, I, I totally agree with you. But, and by the way, I, I sort of had mentally come to the same conclusion, which is, uh, you know how I think it's Obama or maybe it was Clinton had that, that great quote that said, like, there's nothing wrong with America. That's what, 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 what's good with America can't fix or whatever, which is a very cute phrasing of it. I think in a sense, yeah. it's like, what makes it great also makes it yeah. kind of impossible, right? Because I, I was walking down Deviz and, you know, I'm not going to come out and say whether SF is dead or not or whatever, but I heard the exact same startup bro conversations I've heard for the past 20 years. Uh, crypto this, ICO that, you know, the, the whole techno douche quotient is as high yeah. as it's ever been, which is exciting in a way, right? Because it's like, yay, yay, good. Good, right? Like there's Let's weird shit going way. on all the time. I mean, let's keep it that way, because I mean, I th what I worry about is that especially if we're not going to build any more housing, that it becomes that we become like Hawaii. You know, I mean, I live in the Berkeley Hills right. where like my my neighbors will fight to the death to prevent, you know, you from adding like a roof over your porch or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. It's like San Francisco in that sense. Um. I worry about us becoming like a museum, you know, like, um, and so I worry about that. And so, right. Yeah. And then I kind of, but you know, I, I, what I do, my, 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 the trick I pull in San Francisco, San Francisco is that I use as the model city for San Francisco, the city of Amsterdam in Netherlands, you know, you can smoke weed and right. go see the Van Gogh exhibit. You can hire a sex worker, in a highly regulated environment. It's what everybody that goes to Amsterdam from San Francisco loves Amsterdam. Nobody thinks it's fascist. 
I mean, except for whatever, you know, the coalition on homelessness or something, but it's like, like nobody thinks Amsterdam's a conservative city. And I knew that that would go down better than me trying to be like, oh, well, New York does these things right. <laughs> San Franciscans do not want to be compared negatively to New York or right. Miami, although now there's some of that too. But I chose, I deliberately was like, look, you can have, uh, you can right. have a compassionate and humane society, humane civilization and freedom without having the mayhem on the streets. You don't need to have, you know, it's not, these two things don't have to go together. All right, so let's maybe pivot the conversation slightly more positive instead of just whinging about San Francisco. There's lots of, you can whinge, I think, legitimately whinge yeah. about San Francisco. Um, um, but, you know, there has been some positive news. There's a recall vote around the, the Board of Education. There's a recall vote around Boudin. Um, there is definitely a YIMBY movement. Um, you know, one question I've often had, and I know I'm putting a little on the spot, but one question, and I've often criticized tech people, by the way, if like, like, you know, people who are worth lots of money and have the resources and fun companies that are going to build on the moon and whatever. But it's like, look, man, you're com- constantly complaining about San Francisco. Like these board of supervisor elections are won by like 500 votes. Their campaign chests are nothing like 100K. Why don't you take why don't you play a role? Right. Like clearly the tech world is one that actually, you know, picks for success and performance and vision. Why don't you get civically engaged like right. every other dominant industry in every other city in America? Right and like play a role here in improving things. And, and, there, are, and there are people who, who do that. I mean, Gary Tan comes to mind, who's been very involved in the recall vote and the Yimby movement. But by and large, I think techies kind of don't play a strong civic role. And so I'm curious if you have any theories about that. Maybe you've talked to them right. and tried to encourage them to do that, or I don't know, what are your thoughts? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, yeah. I mean, so, okay, I'll try to start positive. So I, um, I praise, I mean, I, you know, I criticize Mark Benioff at Salesforce for just pushing this Proposition C to, you know, spend hundreds of millions of dollars more on homelessness without any changing any of the issues around accountability, you know, just more money for housing first, which is the wrong way to go. You know, we need shelter first, treatment first, housing earned. That's how you do it in every civilized city. I, uh, but I praise Patrick Collison, the CEO and founder of Stripe. Um, Patrick, um, you know, he didn't have to. He spoke out against Prop C and he gave a serious explanation why. He he showed the evidence. And so I, I point to that and he took a lot of shit for it. So, you know, I point to that and I praise him and that's the kind of civic mindedness this issue right. needs. You know, um, why why don't we get more civic engagement? Just, you know why. You know, people are busy. They're trying to make money. You know, politics... You know, if you're if you're the mayor or the, the governor, that's a high status job. But mostly it's a low status profession because you're constantly asking people for money and you're asking people for votes. It's literally the opposite in some ways of being the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is out there breaking things, um, moving quickly. Politics is slow. It's about building right. a base. It's about changing right. opinion very slowly, winning elections, starting from the bottom, moving up. It's just not intuitive. Unless you're going to run for president or governor or something, so that's I think that's that's like ninety percent of it. I mean, you know, I think also, you know, if you're really good, um, if you're really good, you know, a startup guy, yeah, your personality's not worth it. You tend to be a, a STEM type, which is not exactly often. I mean, some people, but it's not super social. I mean, guys like Patrick right. obviously are geniuses at both level, at technical and social, but it's not. 
you know, it's not, I mean, most, a lot of politicians tend to be kind of glad handling types. Now I will say, I do think what I like, I, so I, I, right. I am positive about the Chesa Bodine recall. I would like to see it. I would like to see the people involved with it demonstrate some longer term commitments. You know, you've got, now if you squint, if you go, you know, if Bodine gets recalled and if Mayor Breed appoints Catherine Stefani to the district attorney role, which is what the rumors, rumor mill suggests. And then, um, and then, uh, I, then I guess she would appoint somebody, she should appoint a moderate to Catherine Stephanie's uh, position. Matt Haney is leaving district six, which is the district that oversees Tenderloin. If you could run a moderate to win in that district, you know, if you squint, you can see the San Francisco Board of Supervisors becoming more moderate. You know, it's not hard to see that. Um, but again, you got to be organized. The money has to be raised. I was, um, I've been friends, I've been making friends with some of the folks in San Francisco that are trying to organize beyond Chesa. So I, I did write, you know, I wrote San Francisco in part so that everybody has the handbook. Like, you know, every single piece of data that you need to overthrow the government in San Francisco, you have in San Francisco. Well, well, Michael, why don't why don't you throw your hat in the ring in SF politics? Or I live in Berkeley. Have you ever considered? I live in Berkeley. Oh, come on, that's a lame excuse. Man. Come on. You, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Hillary was a New York senator, and she just moved there. I mean, come on, people move for political office all the time. Yeah, um, I'm really happy. Um, um, I've got two books I'm working on. Um, I'm really happy right now. Uh, <laughs> that's the short okay. version. I'm, I'm a happy person right now. Why would you make me unhappy? Um, yeah. I mean, San Francisco <laughs> is my contribution. You know, I mean, I really do feel like it should, you know, there's no Twitter argument that should be lost to a progressive from now on. And frankly, I just look at, I, you know, I look at it now and I go, yeah, I mean, they're not like they're, they're not like the crime debate is not going well for progressives. And it looks like chess is going to be recalled. So I kind of go, things are looking right. good. I think California, you know, at the end of the book, as you know, I expand and I kind of go, look, you know, you do need a statewide solution. This is a lot to put on a single city. The the addict population is highly transient. That's one of the words we used to use. That was the before we euphem, you know, used euphemisms like homeless. We said transients. So you do need a statewide program. I call it CalPsych. Liberals tend to like it because liberals like new government programs. But the idea would be to basically take over psychiatric and addiction care from um, the counties. I, I, I should remind everyone, Michael, that even though, I mean, you, you use progressive almost, uh, you, you screw them, but you, I mean, you yourself consider yourself left of center and a progressive, right? Um, yeah, I did. I, I, but well, after I wrote this book, as soon as I got done the first draft, I went and changed my party affiliation from Democrat to independent because I just literally, okay. morally, I was like, I can't, no, I'm out. It's just too, there's too much, it's just too much crazy all the way down. And then I um, wrote an essay a few weeks ago, or a few months actually, I guess, before the book came out, where I said I, why I am not a progressive. And I explained that, you know, when I was a, a young radical, I was radical left and then I was progressive. And now I, I guess you can call me liberal or moderate. But, you know, rad, you know, progressive used to mean exactly what you said. It was heroic. It was FDR. It was Kennedy. It was Nelson Mandela. Right. You know, it, who was, you know, sometimes said he was a socialist. You know, it right. was Martin Luther King who was helped by socialists. It was, you know, I, w I went to go work for the Sandinistas when I was in a young man in Nicaragua. I, I helped Lula, Hugo Chavez, like the whole left wing. I'm a left Latin American leftist. It was very heroic. It was, you know, so I have, a, I don't, I disagree now with a lot of those 
socialist movements. But nonetheless, it wasn't like, you know, all black people are victims and will always be victims because of structural racism. That's just offensive. It's wrong and stupid and demoralizing, but it's also just offensive. My friend, John McWhorter, just wrote a book called Woke Racism. I just did an event with him in New York. And um, he's, you know, um, minor deity, as far as I'm concerned. And he's like the first one to be like, this is the most patronizing bullshit. Black people should be completely against this. but, you know, even mentally, I say even, you know, mentally ill people, like they're right. not just victims, like, you know, like people with schizophrenia can work. People with addictions can get over their right. addictions. They're the heroes of the book. So so that's why I'm not a progressive anymore. It's just it just came right. to mean victimology rather than overcoming oppression. Well, and also, um, you know overruling the building of a 400 unit apartment building for the sake of a parking lot or whatever just happens. It's like, wait, what the hell? Um, but it's funny. So it's funny to your own political journey. I mean, you know, there's a number, I'm not saying you're necessarily headed in that direction, but there's a, there's a number of notable conservatives who are just like flaming red commies when they were younger. And in many ways it made them just see right through it. People like, you know, Burnham, James Burnham, who was a noted sort of super hard right wing conservative who was like, a, you know, pro Soviet commie in the thirties, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. So I mean, one question is just, you know, why, you know, is that where I'm headed? Or am I am I really just a conservative? You know, I mean, for me, first of all, you know, I'm not sure what that means. But, you know, I remain pro marijuana decriminalization. I think sex work should be regulated. I think um, if you if I you know, if it were up to me, we'd have single payer health care. I've never understood this mess of a system we have. Um, but I'm practical. So I'm also just kind of like right. it has to be universal. We have to cover everybody, but if it's a private sector model, that's okay. Um, pro, uh, I don't think it makes sense to make to ban abortion. Um, you know, I found Trump offensive and chaotic. Um, so I, you know, part of the reason you write books, you know, you write long books, is that when people are like, "What do you stand for?" I can kind of go here, there they are. You know, go ahead and read them and. People are like, like literally people on Twitter will be like, well, can you just tell me in a couple of tweets? <laughs> I'll try, but I mean, I'll try to do that. But, you know, like I got a, I, you know, I got a book, I got real books and the books kind of tell you what it means to me, you know, to be a liberal in the right. second decade of the 21st century. I, I, was it was it problematic to get the book published at all? Because I, I, you, you really do give it to the progressive movement in this book. And I, I should, by the way, just re-mention what you just said, which is if people are looking for ammunition to use in their debates with SF friends about SF problems, buy this book because <laughs> your book has just an, a, just this cornucopia of facts and details and history about all the mistakes and money being misspent. Um, but uh, yeah. um, so I'm curious, w- was it at all problematic to get it public or did you worry that, you know, I don't know, that you'd get the right brunch invites in San Francisco after this book came out or has there been blowback at all um, on the more political or personal front? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's hard not to see. So when my book Apocalypse Never came out last year, I mean, it was like an atom bomb going off. I mean, it was I was censored by Facebook. Um, I had a bunch of uh, renewable energy funded organizations come after me, you know, at the same time, um, then it became a bestseller. So, you know, all everything bad has a good side to it and vice versa. Um, San Francisco. yeah, I mean, it's um, I mean, the New York Times has said they'll review it. I assume it'll be terrible. Um, I, I, I criticize the Times. Um, 
I mean, the Chronicle has just ignored it stead, you know, steadfastly. Now you kind of go, are they? That's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it's going to be wow. by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I've been on Joe Rogan, but, you know, I think I'll be ignored by KQED and San Francisco Chronicle, you know, which, you know, kind of make up your own judgment about that. The book is too dangerous for them to even talk about. Um, that, but, you know, that's I, weird I, because the Chronicle, the Chronicle doesn't shy away from criticizing a lot of people you do as well. I mean, I, I'm thinking of yeah. writers like Heather Knight, who's yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty withering in her criticism of the current status quo. So I'd be shocked that somehow the Chronicle would just reject your book like that. That's uh, but, huh? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, I will say, you know, I, um, you know, there's some, there's some, <laughs> there's a lot going on in this book that only a few people will be able to see what I'm doing because it's such inside baseball. But basically one of the characters is a sociologist who um, works with the coalition on homelessness. I think he would probably identify as radical left or at least progressive. Um, he was a professor at, he got his PhD at Cal doing work, ethnographic field work with homeless in San Francisco. He's now at Harvard. He's going to be a professor at UCLA. I thought I was going to go into this, my interviews with him. And by the way, they were all over zoom, which made it so interesting, but you know, I thought I was going to go in and have a bunch of arguments with him, but I really liked him, you know, and I respected his research. And there was like basically other academics like that where I was like, your research is just really great. Like, I'm not going to go live in a homeless encampment for three months. Why would I when you've done this work? And besides, even if I did, I'd be criticized for having done it wrong or something. So I relied on these ethnographies. It's been really interesting, their reaction to it. I mean, basically, they kind of go... I, you know, one of them, I'm not going to say who, but some, not, not Chris, but somebody else who's an academic emailed me and he said, I got your book expecting to hate it, but I actually really like it. Um, and I don't agree with all of it. And you made some mistakes, but your idea of Cal psych, that's this statewide, you know, California psychiatric and addiction care services program. He's like, is really good, you know, and we really ought to talk about it more. And he said, um, I saw him in person and he was like, He's like, look, housing first is just, everybody knows it's bullshit. Obviously, I mean, obviously, you know, right. the official line from housing first is it's just a poverty problem. Um, it's just that we don't spend enough money problem and give us a few more years and we'll fix it. And no, right. it's like, I mean, I don't even think they believe that anymore. So, so I think that like, even the radical left right. is kind of like, not sure what they do with me. Because if you argue with me, they're going to lose. Certainly, they must know that. So I think the best right. they can do is kind of hope that it all blows over and that I go away. Last year, they were much more actively trying to just kind of personally defame and discredit me. Um, this year, it's been different. So it's interesting. I mean, in some ways, it gives me hope. On the other hand, you know, it's not that like it doesn't it's not, you know, on the it's not going to be on the bestseller lists. You know, so so that's a little. I'm a competitive person, so it's a little disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. And out of curiosity, have you heard anything back from? I mean, some of the biggest characters in your book, people like London Breed, Chesa Boudin, have they reacted either officially or unofficially to to your book? Nothing. No? Nothing that I've heard. Um, the book was given to the mayor. I, I I wrote a handwritten note to the mayor. Um, she comes off pretty well as you may know. Um, I mean, you may remember, she comes off pretty well. Um, yes, yes. You know, I mean, 
Matt Haney, he's the district, he's the district six tenderloin supervisor. You know, I, I don't think he comes off as well as the mayor, but I'm not, you know, I mean, it was kind of like, I, I was like, there's a moment there where I'm like, what's the big prey here? You know, like, what's the, like, when you kind of go, who is really responsible for this? You know, when you follow it all the way through, I mean, like, it's like, right. I'm going to blame Foucault more, you know, I have like three, there's two academics the housing, the housing first propagandists, basically, plus Jennifer Friedenbach from the Coalition of Homelessness. They are, for me, the three most influential people. But even those three are only powerful because everybody else has been brainwashed. You know, and so it's like when you kind of go, who are the bad guys in this book? You know, it was pretty, you know, I pretty quickly in the process, I ripped back the curtain and I looked down and I go, wow, it's like an intellectual midget. It's not like this is... You know, it's not like I pull back the curtain and I go, oh my God, there's dragons. You pull back the curtain and you go, oh my God, it's just a little dude here. That's all it is with just some really bad, just like kind of delusional, you know, crappy ideas. So I think they're just kind of ducking for cover right now. So, well, again, I, I'm going to ask you all the questions I've always wanted to ask about San Francisco because you're probably the biggest authority about like what's wrong with San Francisco I've ever encountered. So one thing, you mentioned Matt Haney, right? And he's the supervisor for the Tenderloin and the Tenderloin... I suspect most listeners know what it is, but it, it's basically an open air insane asylum and like drug area. There's just nothing else about yeah. that. And it's just, it, I, even driving through it just it, is an experience. And so I'm curious, somebody like Matt Haney, like, does he just walk around and just think, oh, this isn't my problem? Or does he think this is, or like, I don't understand. I could not be in a public charge responsible for a certain part of the city and look at that and think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> I just don't understand. How do they see the city being like, do you have any insight yeah. to that or is there, I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Oh, I know. I mean, I could, um, like I said, I steal man. And if you were to like, if I were to, I could pretend to be Matt Haney for like an hour and a half and I could probably say almost exactly what I think he would say. And I interviewed him for that long, by the way. And so I'm in, by the way, I'm grateful to him for speaking to me that long. And, you know, um, yeah. So he would say, I'm like, these people are all on drugs and he'd be like, yeah, that's about right. And, and then I'd be like, this is, a, this is our humanity is being destroyed. And he would be like, yep, you know, there's a lot of sick people here and people come here because they're sick. I'm like, we're attracting people because they want to be able to be addicts and live on the street or get a free room and get some cash and use heroin and meth. And that's it. It's a story, right? And he's kind of like, yeah, a lot of sick people. And then he would kind of go, but I don't think there's, he would say, and this is the part where I think there's some slipperiness, not some, a lot of slipperiness where he'd kind of go, I don't think there's a big appetite for arresting people, you know, for involving law enforcement. Well, that's slippery because he's the one that opposes using law enforcement to break up open drug scenes. As I point out, right. you have to use law enforcement. You know, Amsterdam and all <laughs> right. these civilized countries, they use social, they're social workers. You know, I mean, I don't know why this is so hard for people. Um, you know, the classic pairing is a social worker and a police officer together going up to somebody and saying you can't camp here right. tonight and the reason you have a police officer there is so that they can make an arrest and deal with violence because a lot of people are violent you say right. you can't sleep here tonight and if you don't move your tent and get going somewhere else then you, you will be arrested um well there's not even appetite for that i mean there's i had this um twitter debate like last week with a famous journalist in this space, in the drug space, you know, she's not famous beyond that, but her name is Maya, I can't pronounce her last name. She's written a lot for Vice. 
And I was like, you have to arrest addicts and drug dealers, guys. Come on. Like, let's just stop. That's what they do in Portugal. And I was like, you've been misrepresenting Portugal. That's one of the things you have. A lot of progressives go, we should just do what they did in Portugal and legalize all the drugs and then everything would be fine. It's like, well, wait, first of all, that doesn't make any right. sense at all. Like, how does that, like, how does that solve drug addicts being on the street? And second of all, that's not what they did in Portugal. I interviewed the head of the Portuguese drug program and I right. go, what would happen if we, if you, if someone's shooting drugs in public in Portugal, he says they would be arrested by the police and taken to the police station. And I, I recorded it over Zoom and I keep right. linking it to them. I'm like, just don't take my word for it. Here's the guy, you know? <laughs> and she kept saying, I just don't think, she, here's what happens. I'll go, you have to arrest people. And they go, I don't think people putting people in prison is the answer. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, did, did I say prison? I, I didn't say prison. Well, you said arrest people. And I was like, right, are you familiar with what an arrest is? So I think that there's a fair number of progressives I can't tell if they're being if they're playing stupid or not. Arresting people is not the same as right. incarcerating them. These are two different words. Arresting you right. can be arrested and the police you can be arrested, which literally is the French word for to stop, and give them a ticket. You can arrest people and take them to the police station and let them out. Right. You can take them to the police station and put them in jail for a day and still not, you know, prison. So and there's and you can take them in front of a judge and say, You will go to right. prison or you can go to rehab. So arrest is just a, it's just saying you can't do that. You can't commit that crime anymore. I'm arresting you. I'm stopping you right. from committing a crime. And, and I, you know, I think I can't tell whether they're playing dumb or whether they are dumb. Either way, it's an indictment because you have to say, no, you have to, you have to enforce laws. It's, it's absurd. You know, I'm saying you're like, it's like, I'm, I'm taking right. this absurd position that you should enforce laws. You know what I mean? And that's controversial with a certain woke progressive crowd on Twitter. No, I think you're right. I think, I think th that's why I wanted to ask, you know, Chester B. Dean, like, do you think your parents should have gone to jail? Right. Like, I think a lot of this crew just does not believe in the basic tenets of law and order. And like, somebody's doing something illegal, even if it seems victimless, like camping out on the street, but it's not, it's, it is an aggression against everyone who has this degraded cityscape that has to live with it. And it's never just one guy, it's a hundred guys. And suddenly nobody can walk on the street and it, the whole city's a disaster. That is not a victimless crime. Right. We all, I mean, I, I remember, um, um, God, what's his name? Right. Like, um, there are no victimless crimes, right? If they right. were victimless crimes, they would not be crimes. Crimes. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of go now, okay, fine. Like, okay. You could say, well, but Mar what about marijuana? Um, people, you know, um, we change law. Okay, fine. But when we change the laws, it's because we actually decide that they're victimless crimes, but just not enforcing them. Right. Because the DA decide. I mean, I mean, anyway, you guys elected the guy. So. Right. Well, speaking of the DA, you mentioned Stefani. I just saw the news that came out yesterday. I guess um, the they're pushing for a bill that would actually force Boudin or the or the prosecutor's office to actually release um, like indictment or arraignments. Basically, how often do they actually charge somebody for domestic crimes? Because I guess he's basically charging right. nobody for domestic violence, apparently. And Stefani is trying yeah, to impose yeah, yeah. transparency by basically forcing him to report it. And of course, he's evading it and saying, no, 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 I don't need to report it. Because <laughs> the numbers would, of course, look horrible. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I I hate to take it to the theological, level, but I think there's something broken. I, I think, you know, California... I think the, I think the, the truism about California being like the future of the U.S. and the U.S. being the future of the West is still kind of true to a certain degree. And I think we're out here on the crazy fringes where yeah. Western civilization is just basically yes. saying 
yes, the God of the Hebrew Bible is dead. <laughs> the Ten Commandments are gone. We're wrapped up in the secularized Christianity and this victimology. And that's it. Rules, rules are not things that we enforce anymore. Yes. And if it's imposed as a tax on everybody else, well, you know what? You probably deserve it because you're a techie or you're a landowner or you're whatever and just suck it up and take it. And that that's... Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing. You know, I don't know if you remember, but there was a period after 9-11 where there was all this, there were like some books and there was like TV and there was a lot of understanding where they were like, okay, when everyone had calmed down, You know, and they were like, who are these terrorists? Who are they? And what you discover is that they were idealists. These were utopian idealists. They wanted a better right. world. And not just the right. 9-11 hijackers, okay? I'm, well, what about like the 1960s era radicals? People like Chesa Bodine's parents. Same thing. These were people who were absolutely heartbroken at the at the genuine right. atrocities in places like Vietnam, genuine atrocities, you know, and they, and, and they would. So so you would find. The terrorists were actually these deeply compassionate people, but they had got their brains had gotten miswired. Right. There was a normal thing. Even I remember when I was right. in my most radical. And I'm not a pacifist, but, you know, I think that armed revolution is sometimes justified. But you very quickly kind of go, you know, as you know, if you're, if you're radical left, you kind of go, that's not going to end well, you know, playing in terrorism. And sure enough, before his parents were involved in a botched robbery that killed three people, one security guard and two police officers, one of them was black. Before that occurred, they um, their comrades, um, including uh, Chess's mother, uh were um uh she was she survived but they blew up a they blew up a an apartment building in Greenwich Village because they were mixing up the medicine according to the famous uh, Bob Dylan lyric mixing up the medicine in the basement and the whole brownstone basically collapsed the kids in the basement got killed there's this famous photo of Dustin Hoffman like escaping his brownstone like right next door um you know so so we are they already knew that this was terrible. And very few people also know that, like, they were involved. It was actually they were going to use the money to buy a lot of cocaine. <laughs> Again, I didn't yes, know that. I know. Wow. I, I had to cut so many good things. But <laughs> yeah, they were they were with because there was it was the Weather Underground, which were the white rich kids, and then there were there's the Black Radicals. I think it was the Black Liberation Army. Right. And they were they had a whole scheme to buy cocaine. Of course, they were going to, you know, use the revenues. I mean, the profits to support good causes, of course. Right. But there was a lot of cocaine. Of course. You know, I mean, I did find a significant amount of drug use on the radical left here. So a lot of this bad stuff is being fueled by pretty intoxicated people, literally and, and psychologically, literally and uh, ideologically, I should say. Cool. Well, so this, this is great. Like, I, I feel like I could riff with you forever because, again, I've, I've been lived in and out of the Bay Area for 20 years and you've answered so many questions for me, I think, filled in some of the, so many of the gaps. So I once again encourage everybody. Um, in fact, this conversation has gone so well, I think we, we might end up doing a text Q&A on it and, and it'll go out for my, my, my many subscribers. Um, I have one last question for you, though. Sure. Because, um, you again, you had, so many, you had so many great threads in your book. One of the weird, one of the interesting thing is you cite the owner of the deli board all the time, right? It's like it's amazing. It's like you you pull out this dude and I've eaten there because it, it's it's the one on like Folsom and Seventh, right, or Sixth is or yes. I think that's that's where it used to be, right? Go and, um, eat at the deli board. Go eat at the deli board. Yes. Go at the deli board. They have amazing sandwiches. But out of curiosity, is it 
was he just like a friend of yours who happened to be a very good observer while was going on in that particular part of the neighborhood? Or why was he such a sort of recurring character? No, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I started um, following his Twitter handle because he he's this oh. sort of, um, his name is Adam Mesnick and his Twitter handle is Better Soma. Right. And he shoots videos of homeless people that he interviews um, I'm my formal training. I'm a PhD dropout. I was an anthropologist. And so I love ethnography. Really good ethnography for me is giving me good ethnography over a million quantitative data analyses. So he's out there. He's out there. He's a true street videographer and street ethnographer. And so I just so I watched and most people can't tolerate it because it's so he's so he can be abrasive. But of course, you know, you right. start to recognize as a writer, you start to recognize good characters. And of course, as soon as you meet him, you're like, Oh, this guy's got a heart of gold. You know, he's of course he's deeply compassionate. I mean, you know, on all sides. So yeah, people should follow him better Soma and they should eat at deli board because he's gotten a fair amount of flack for his, his being outspoken. <laughs> Great. Isn't he from, he's from, from Cleveland, Cleveland or Pittsburgh, right? Right. I think I've met him when he when he just he used to be next to my favorite beer bar called City Beer Store, which is just down the street. And I remember when they first opened, I went there and he gave me the whole spiel about Cleveland, this, the particular school of Cleveland subway sandwiches or whatever that he's got. And there's like a whole philosophy there, which I find fascinating. Cool. Well, well, thank you, Michael. Once again, the, the book is San Francisco. And then before that, Apocalypse Never. Um, I think you're probably one of the more brave and polemical figures. And I think the amazing thing about, again, your book is that it's so grounded in reality. I can see why you'd be hard to refute because... The data is all there. So if anyone wants ammunition in their fights with their progressive friends or anybody about San Francisco, I would definitely um, encourage you to, to buy to buy the book. And what's your what's your next book about, by the way, if, if you don't mind talking about it? I actually, you know, you said you had Ryan Holiday on. I'm going to take Ryan Holiday's advice and not talk about it. <laughs> Great. It's funny. I get I'm also working on a book and I get asked about it. I'm like, dude, I, I'm already sick of the book. I don't want to talk. I'm not going to bore you about it. But from the purely marketing perspective, they change, you know, they change, they, they change and evolve. And so you got to let these books emerge right. as they want to emerge. Cool. Well, I'll look forward to it. Uh, thanks again, Michael. Thanks, Antonio. Uh, Great to meet you. Finally. Uh, yes, indeed. Likewise. Bye. Bye. Hey, so was that good? Did, did you enjoy that? I hope I didn't ask too many prickly questions. You're, you're on mute, by the way. You're on mute. No, 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 man. Totally great. Super fun. Cool. What are you, do these, what are you doing these days? You're working on a new book, huh? Um, well, so I was working on book two when I kind of wimped out of being a writer person. I went back to tech, and I worked at a big startup for a while, and then obviously the Apple thing for a month. Yeah, and then, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And now, I mean, I got a Substack Pro deal, right? So, like, it's relatively risk-free to do the Substack thing, and it's going pretty well. Um, the the Colin thing between us... Um, How much of it, can I ask him where your Substack deal was? Um, I think I'm supposed to. I, I think officially there's a confidentiality clause. However, I'm happy to give ranges. It's it's comparable to like, well, it depends who you are. You know, Maddie Blessias made probably more than a book advance. Um, but no, no, I trying to make her not. Anyhow, um, so it can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think Matt Iglesias got like 800 or 900K or something. He talked about it. He posted about it. 